Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have four brand new movies to review for you, and the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Godzilla vs. Kong which is now out in theaters nationwide. And for those of you who are a little too afraid to go to theaters right now and you haven't had your COVID vaccination shots, I don't blame you entirely. But you can catch this movie on HBO Max. The movie is the long-awaited Godzilla vs. Kong, which was released on HBO Max on March 31st, 2021. And it would have been released in theaters in November 2020, had it not been for the COVID pandemic. So I don't blame the distributor of this movie, uh, Legendary Pictures, for, or or actually Warner Brothers distributed them. I don't blame them for holding off on this film, but I would have gladly waited months to have seen this movie on the big screen after herd immunity is achieved and whatnot. But... I don't think a lot of people are going to care because this is probably the most anticipated showdown since Batman versus Superman. And the less I say about Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, the better. Actually, the movie was okay, but it wasn't as great as it could have been. But this is actually not the first time that Godzilla and Kong did battle with one another. There was a movie that came out in 1962 in Japan that's called... King Kong versus Godzilla. In this movie, I guess the giant ape isn't a king yet. I'm not sure exactly why, but he wasn't considered King Kong in the movie Kong Skull Island, of which Godzilla versus Kong is a sequel. This is actually the fourth film Godzilla versus Kong is in Legendary Pictures Monsterverse, which is arguably the most successful cinematic universe other than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Is it more successful than the DC Extended Universe? Maybe not monetarily, but critically, I would say so, and for good reason. The original Godzilla movie in Legendary's MonsterVerse came out in 2014. It starred Brian Cranston, Aaron Taylor Johnson, and Elizabeth Olsen. And that movie was excellent. Even though it was made in America, it was a far cry better than the 1998 film that's also called Godzilla, where a creature who's named Godzilla attacks New York City. But A lot of people, myself included, refer to the Godzilla in the 1998 movie as GINO, G-I-N-O, acronym for Godzilla in name only, because he looked like some kind of prehistoric creature, but not the Godzilla that we know and love from the Japanese films, particularly the original one from the 50s. So after the 2014 Godzilla, we were given... Kong Skull Island, which came out in 2017, and it starred Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, and John Goodman. And interestingly enough, Kong Skull Island took place in the early 1970s, whereas this movie, Godzilla vs. Kong, takes place present day. I don't know if the same 
Kong in Kong Skull Island is the exact same gorilla as the one in this film, but it, it's up to you to decide whether or not that is. It's not explained very well, the connection between the two movies. But Godzilla vs. Kong is also a sequel to the 2019 film Godzilla King of the Monsters, which had a lot of very impressive CGI, but not a very good story, in my opinion. Godzilla vs. Kong has a better story. I think when it comes to the humans in the film, the story gets a little bit complicated, but it is great to finally see Kong and Godzilla in their CGI forms duking it out. Now, the King Kong vs. Godzilla movie of 1962 had Godzilla and Kong as stop-motion animated creatures, In this one, they are CGI creatures. So this movie takes place five years after the events of Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It's after Godzilla defeats King Ghidorah. And Kong is actually not, well, he is on Skull Island, but he's monitored by a group by the name of Monarch. And he's kept within a giant dome, which you don't realize until... Kong takes a tree, throws it into the sky, and it uh, smashes one of the digital uh, screens that makes up this giant dome. And Kong lives amongst some native humans on Skull Island, including a young girl by the name of Gia, who is on Kong's good side. She's deaf, and she communicates via sign language, which... Kong does as well. And while all this is going on, there is a conspiracy theorist by the name of Bernie Hayes who works for a company called Apex Cybernetics who is who finds himself extracting data suggesting sinister activities at a Pensacola, Florida facility. And Godzilla attacks this Pensacola facility and with it, Godzilla becomes an enemy of the press, much to the dissatisfaction of a young girl named Madison Russell, who's played by Millie Bobby Brown, best known for playing the girl Eleven in Stranger Things. And Millie Bobby Brown was actually in the previous Godzilla movie, Godzilla King of the Monsters. And she happens to be a fan of Bernie Hayes' podcast. And Bernie Hayes, by the way, is played by Brian Tyree Henry, who is a British actor and a very good one. But I do have to say it was very hard to get on Brian Tyree Henry's character's side because he's a conspiracy theorist. And with all the stuff that's going on in the world with Alex Jones and with QAnon, I am sick and tired of conspiracy theorists. It's just like, give it up, people. But in this case, this conspiracy theorist, as is typical of Uh, conspiracy theorist in movies is absolutely correct. The company for which he works, Apex Cybernetics, is developing a portal to hollow earth to, uh, to infiltrate the home world of the Titans. And how Kong uh, is, is brought into this is that he is brought in to guide certain members of the Apex Cybernetics Corporation into 
hollow earth via an outpost in Antarctica. So Kong is bound by chains and sedated until he actually meets Godzilla. And from there, the big showdown and the big fight goes on. So I'm not going to tell you all the plot details of this movie. Actually, I thought there were a few too many supporting human characters, but it does, I think in a less contrived kind of way, bring Kong and Godzilla together and certainly brings about the animosity between the two of them. And I thought the fights between Godzilla and Kong were well worth the price of admission, even though I saw this movie on HBO Max, not in a movie theater. But I hope after herd immunity is achieved and the pandemic dies down, that I will finally get to see this movie on the big screen because this movie is meant to be seen on the big screen. But I did enjoy the the fight between the two of them. I thought that a lot of the characters, particularly the researcher of Kong, who's played by Rebecca Hall, were not particularly well-developed for the human characters in this movie. I did think that the characters played by uh, Brian Tyree Henry and Millie Bobby Brown were developed well enough, but I also thought they could have done better with all the other characters. Plus, I would have liked to have known in a movie before Godzilla vs. Kong how they decided to build a whole dome over Skull Island. That was not in the movie Kong Skull Island. That movie took place in the early 70s and ended in the early 70s with the people who were discovering uh, Skull Island wisely leaving Kong exactly where he was. Unlike in the original King Kong from 1933, which is semi-irreplaceable. And I say semi because not only is it a classic movie, but also I thought Peter Jackson did an amazing job and probably even an underrated job, even though the movie was a hit, of remaking King Kong in 2005. I saw that movie in theaters when it came out. I was amazed by it and a little bit disappointed that the CGI King Kong from that movie who was played uh, in motion capture by Andy Serkis wasn't the Kong in Godzilla vs. Kong. But then again, that movie takes place in the early 30s And this movie takes place in the early 2020s, i.e. present day. So there is probably no way that a gorilla of that size would still be alive (laughs) in present day. And it's even amazing that the gorilla that was alive in the early 70s is presumably alive here. But as I was saying, I do kind of wish they'd filled in that plot hole of, of how they developed the dome around Skull Island, particularly after the events that took place after the early 1970s in the 2015, uh, excuse me, 2017 film. And I also thought it would have been a cool kind of movie to see the complications that arose when they built this dome or even the decision to build a dome around Skull Island, despite, you know, the big complication of this giant ass gorilla there in the middle of the island that would cause probably a lot of um, insurance problems, just to say the least. But 
Godzilla vs. Kong, I thought, lived up to its hype when it came to the monsters duking it out against one another. And as it turns out, there is another classic Godzilla villain from an earlier film from the 60s that appears in this film. And I'm not going to tell you who it is because that's one of the big plot twists of this movie. And Words on Film has a rule, or at least I have a rule that I adopt for Words on Film, which is no spoilers. But once this villain makes its appearance, it doesn't disappoint. And it makes the fighting between these two presumed enemies even more intriguing. So I give Godzilla vs. Kong a marginal knockout. I do think that some of the human characters could have been better developed, but I did think that the CGI animation on the Godzilla and Kong characters was nearly flawless. And the fight between the two of them was very well choreographed. Plus, I also liked the plot hole, excuse me, the subplot, which actually brings Kong and Godzilla together in the same place. I thought that it didn't, it wasn't exactly promising considering that Kong Skull Island and Godzilla King of the Monsters were lacking in terms of both plot and plausibility. But I think that Godzilla versus Kong made up for what those two movies lacked and certainly had the excitement and the less than predictability of the 2014 Godzilla movie. It's not better than that American Godzilla movie, but it is better than the sequels that came before it. And the fight between the two monsters did not disappoint at all. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Concrete Cowboy. This is a brand new film that debuted on Netflix on April 2nd, 2021. It is directed by Ricky Staub. Concrete Cowboy is his feature film directorial debut. Before he worked on Concrete Cowboy, both as a director and as a co-writer, he also worked as an assistant to the director of Devil, The Last Airbender, and Snow White and the Huntsman. And he also wrote a series of short films before Concrete Cowboy. So this is a very impressive directorial debut for Ricky Staub. And the people who wrote the story and screenplay were Ricky Staub, the director, and Dan Walser. 
And this is a movie about a teenager discovers the world of urban horseback riding when he moves in with his estranged father in North Philadelphia. It's actually based upon a novel called Ghetto Cowboy, which is by Greg Nary, which is actually a fictionalization of the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club and urban African-American horse riding culture in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And there are people who actually belong to the real Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club who appear as themselves at the very end and make this a little bit more of a docudrama than it would be without their input. But a lot of them say, a lot of people think of Philadelphia, and the last thing they think of is horseback riding. And yeah, I'm with them right here. In fact, I would probably say that Nashville, the city from where I broadcast, is more of a horseback riding city than Philadelphia, but I may be wrong about that. So the kid in this movie who moves in with his estranged father is named Cole, which is short for Coltrane, and his character is actually named after John Coltrane, and he's played by Caleb McLaughlin. And Caleb McLaughlin is only 19 years old. He'll be 20 in October. Yeah, he was actually born after 9-11, which is kind of amazing. But anyway, he's best known for playing the part of Lucas Sinclair in the Netflix series Stranger Things. And if you're not familiar with Stranger Things, or if you're vaguely familiar, seen a few episodes here and there, he's basically the only black kid I think even in the town, but most especially in the group of misfits that protect Millie Bobby Brown's character, Eleven. And Cole is a kid who lives in Detroit with his mother, but then he ends up getting into a fight in school, which is probably the straw that breaks the camel's back, and he ends up getting expelled from high school. His exacerbated mother, with who's said she's tried everything, drives him all the way to Philadelphia, which is probably about, I think, an 8 to 12-hour drive from Detroit. I haven't driven that way before, but I've heard about people going from Michigan or somewhere in the Midwest to Philadelphia in a a matter of days. But she sends him to live with her ex-husband and his father, whose name is Harp, and he's played by the great Idris Elba. And Cole learns that his father lives alone, was sort of alone. He's not married, but he actually has a horse in his apartment in Philadelphia because there is a stable literally across the corner from where he lives, but that stable is full, and so he has to do the best he can. And this apartment, I think if you think you live in a place that's messy, try seeing Harp's place. It might make you feel better. Not to mention he lives with a horse, so it would probably smell terribly in there. But as it turns out, Harp is part of a community in North Philadelphia consisting all of black people who care for horses and also give horse riding lessons to people who want it. In other words, they are part of the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club, which apparently is not the only horse riding club in the African-American community in Philadelphia. There's also a matriarch who is uh, 
who is part of this uh, horseback riding club. Her name is Nessie, and she's played by an actress named Lorraine Toussaint. And Lorraine Toussaint is a Trinidadian actress and producer. She's been in several movies over the last 30 to 40 years. I actually know her particularly well from her villainous role of Yvonne V. Parker in another Netflix original series, Orange is the New Black. And she's a great actress. In fact, she's so great. I absolutely hated her character in Orange is the New Black. And she meets a satisfying demise in that movie. But what I'm saying is that while I hated her in Orange is the New Black, I really liked her in this film. She certainly is the voice of reason when Idris Elba's character isn't quite so reasonable, particularly to his estranged son. And there are also several other actors in this film, some of whom comprise um, actual members of the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club, including one um, person who's actually um, paralyzed and plays a variation of himself in the movie. But there are other familiar actors who... Uh, still convinced me that they were part of the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club, even when they weren't, including uh, Clifford Method Man Smith, best known as Method Man from the Wu-Tang Clan, for the first time playing a positive black role model. He plays a guy by the name of Leroy, who is a Philadelphia police officer, who is part of this group, or at least a worthy... Um, adversary of this group. And I really like the, the dialogue in this film. It all feels real. And I especially appreciated the fact that this movie was filmed on location in North Philadelphia. It wasn't filmed in Toronto or in Georgia. Not that there's anything wrong with filming in those places, but if you can get, um, an on location shoot, it makes the film all the all the richer, and I think that Philadelphia served as another character in this film. And it is great to see Caleb McLaughlin's character have a better head on his shoulders after hanging, or rather, learning to ride a horse with the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club. And there are some great scenes, including one uh, particularly unruly horse that. Cole, uh, Caleb McLaughlin's character, befriends and ultimately trains. There are some heartbreaking moments in this film, and there's also a subplot with a childhood friend of Cole's whose name is Smush, and that's the the name of the character we learn. I don't think we ever learn his real name. He's played by Jarrell Jerome. He's a good character, too, although you can tell he's bad news. I think probably the most predictable part of the movie is Smush going about his business in North Philadelphia, uh, doing drug deals and other nefarious behaviors, and Cole literally going along for the ride with him, despite the disapproval of his father. And I maybe it was realistic, but I didn't think it was particularly unpredictable or not as unpredictable as it should have been. But the the parts with Smush, with uh, Jarrell 
Jerome's characters, some parts were particularly shocking, but when I, I'm trying not to spoil it here, <laughs> there's a certain climax that happens with Smush character. And even though it is shocking, you can see it coming as you're watching the film. But overall, I had a certain, a greater appreciation for a group I didn't know existed. And this movie could probably influence a lot of other people in other cities, not just rural towns, to start urban riding clubs of their own. And Concrete Cowboy gets my rating of a knockout. I think Idris Elba was a great lead actor in this film. I think that Caleb McLaughlin acted incredibly well alongside Idris Elba, and the two of them had amazing chemistry together. I thought Lorraine Toussaint and Method Man had great supporting roles. Again, Method Man, fortunately breaking uh, character type after playing uh, drug dealers and, and gang members. It's great to see him branch out from that, as he should since he's approaching 50 now, but Concrete Cowboy was not a movie I expected to be as great as it was. I, I loved how it dodged predictability, but I also actually want might want to take horseback riding lessons after seeing this movie, but of course, we'll have to see. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Bad Trip. This is a movie that premiered on Netflix on March 26th, which was last week as of the date the show is being recorded, but I just got around to reviewing it this week. It premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival on March 14th, 2020, and That was right before the pandemic hit. And it was supposed to receive a theatrical release by Orion Pictures on April 17th, 2020, but it was postponed indefinitely due to the COVID-19 pandemic. You're going to hear me saying that a lot about new films. But Netflix bought the distribution rights to Bad Trip and premiered it on March 26th on their channel. So this is a mix of a scripted buddy comedy road movie and a real hidden camera prank show, which follows the outrageous misadventures of two buds stuck in a rut who embark on a cross-country road trip to New York City from Florida, I think maybe Pensacola. But the storyline sets up shocking real pranks that these two buds whose names are uh, Chris and Bud, who are played by Eric Andre, stand-up comedian, and Lil Rel Howery, best known for being the best best friend in the whole world in the movie Get Out. And the two of them are taking a road trip together because Eric Andre's character Chris uh, meets 
his high school crush after several years, whose name is Maria, who's played by Michaela Conlin. She is coming back to her hometown to visit, but gives Eric Andre's character a business card to say that if he's in New York City anytime soon, that he should come and visit her. And the the movie has these three actors plus Tiffany Haddish playing Bud's um, ex or convict sister Trina Malone. And they are more or less the major characters in this film that actually do the acting. There are some other actors here and there, but the movie's bread and butter is these actors interacting with real people as cameras are on them. This is actually brought to you, the movie is, by some of the people who brought you the Jackass film and Bad Grandpa. There are actually three Jackass films plus Bad Grandpa, which was a spinoff of that film. And certainly, this movie was inspired by Borat, particularly the first film from 2006. And in fact, when Eric Andre first screened the film, he screened it exclusively for Sasha Baron Cohen himself. But Bad Trip is not nearly as good or as focused a film as Borat is. What made Borat good was not only the real interactions that Sasha Baron Cohen had as Borat with real people, but also the fact that he had a legitimate and original character, which he performed almost like Peter Sellers or Andy Kaufman. In other words, he immersed himself in this original character. And also, there was no other character like Borat before the Ali G show, or especially um, before the, the Borat film. The characters in Bad Trip that Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery play are like characters we've seen before. In fact, the plot of this movie was so similar to Dumb and Dumber that if they had just ditched the real people's reaction and made an, a movie with uh, actors who were extras, it would have been considered a black ripoff of Dumb and Dumber more or less, and with all the hijinks that ensue in this movie. But Eric Andre plays a guy who's not particularly ambitious until he meets this girl, Maria, and he does things like, after meeting Maria, he sits on a park bench and and talks to a kindly old man asking him for advice on a girl he likes who lives in New York City, and this guy tells him, you should go after this woman, as I'm sure just about any stranger could probably tell this guy. So he starts breaking into this song, which is called I Saw a Girl Today. And I would have liked this song a little bit better, except the the first two lines of the chorus are, and I quote, I saw a girl today, I saw a girl okay. Which sounds to me, I'll end quote that, it sounds to me like the laziest songwriting I've ever heard. It reminds me very much of the Neil Diamond song where, and I'm not making this up, Neil Diamond actually sings, and I quote, 
the songs she sang to me, the songs she brang to me, end quote. And I'm not a big Neil Diamond fan, but I know that line because it is so notoriously bad and grammatically incorrect. This one isn't grammatically incorrect. You couldn't find any other word besides okay that rhymed with today? Nothing? I, I don't know. But the song's not that great. He does do this song and dance number where he almost gets hit by a car, but not missing a beat to his credit. He actually starts walking up the car when, it, of course, when it's come to a complete stop and dancing on it. He should actually thank his lucky stars that that car didn't take off when he climbed up onto the top of it. But there was another guy to whom he was singing this song, and this guy was saying, get the F away from me, and actually kicked Eric Andre as he was walking around the mall. And I don't blame this guy for doing this. But again, I, I thought that as this guy was, was singing the song, which is, by the way, the only song in this movie, and you could tell that a comedy is desperate when they only have one song in it and they don't consider the rest of the movie a musical. Again, I, I see this guy singing this song to people who just don't exactly know what to make of it, who are going to the mall in the real world. And it's, it's just not funny. Their reactions, they just look like what the hell is going on here. There's, there's nothing particularly funny about their reactions. It just seems like either they're ignoring it and who could blame them or they just, they just look at it and go, okay, this guy's making a fool out of himself. It actually would have been funny if there were security guards who came in and dragged this, uh, dragged Eric Andre out, but there wasn't that. Plus, I do think that Eric Andre is a guy in his 30s, and he plays a guy who acts like a kid who's no older than 15. He meets this girl he hasn't seen since high school, and he automatically thinks that he's going to drive to New York City, profess his love to this woman, and she's going to just take the bait. Wouldn't an adult in his 30s, whether he has a fulfilling career or not, maybe start by, I don't know, asking the girl out on a date first? I don't know. And there's also a contrived plot where Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery actually take their, actually take, Bud Malone's Lil Rel Howery's character's sister's car while she is presumably in prison herself. And Tiffany Haddish, who plays Lil Rel Howery's sister, breaks out of prison and somehow learns that they're going to New York City and somehow finds them. Now, the reason this movie would not work as a, a movie that's part comedy and parts found footage as it seems to be, or one of those prank films like the Jackass films, one of the reasons it w probably wouldn't work as a straight-up comedy with with extras playing the, uh, or with actors playing the extras and being told by a director to, to be quiet on the set or mime their conversations is because there is no feasible way that Tiffany Haddish's character would be able to find these other characters. There's just no way. Even if the two of them took I-95, it's, it's just, 
it couldn't happen or there's less of a likelihood that it would happen unless she was able to track them on their cell phones, which is plausible. But Tiffany Haddish's character doesn't seem to have that, um, insight to her or the, the movie was basically made just to get a reaction out of people who in any other movie could have been extras. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it got a couple of chuckles out of me. Like there was this one time where, or this one scene where Tiffany Haddish goes around to all these people who's with pictures of Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery and are saying to them, have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? If I see them, I'm going to kill them. And then five minutes later, Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery go into the same restaurant. And the reactions on those people's faces were genuine, almost like, oh, you're going to die. But it doesn't get much funnier than that. And there's another part that made me laugh. But again, it's few and far between because this movie borrows way too much plot-wise from Dumb and Dumber. And I actually arguably think that Eric Andre plays somebody who's dumber than Lloyd and Harry from Dumb and Dumber, particularly because of his junior high-like expectations of driving to New York City to meet this girl. But overall, you can definitely tell that the people who made this film were having a good time making it. But I just didn't find it all that funny. And there was even one scene where Lil Rel Howery, who's supposed to be the smarter character of the two, by a lot. He's the straight man, but he's the smarter character. But he has to stop to use the bathroom. He stops in a porta potty and then he cries for help for a woman nearby to open the door of the porta potty and have him and she she sees as she opens the door Lil Rel Howery's torso poking out over the toilet seat. How the hell in broad daylight is somebody going to put both of their feet in a latrine. How does that happen? That happens either if it's dark or if you're high. Uh, but literal how, or if you're stupid, Th- three possibilities. It's dark and you don't know where the toilet seat is. You know, of course, you'd use the flashlight on your cell phone in that case. If you're high or drunk or if you're stupid. But Lil Rel Howery is none of those things. And then when the latrine gets knocked over, that's predictable. We've seen that in other movies and TV shows before. Plus, Lil Rel Howery plays a character that's much smarter than this. This is a low-bar Tom Green type of prank that doesn't work in this movie. Some other people found Bad Trip funny. I didn't. I give it a flunk out. And I've seen Eric Andre before. I know he's a stand-up comedian. I haven't seen either his show on um, Adult Swim, which is called The Eric Andre Show. And I haven't seen his stand-up. But I have the feeling that he's smarter than this movie. He certainly has the ambition to be in this kind of movie. But I don't think it's particularly funny. I thought that... He and Lil Rel Howery didn't work particularly well because they were basically playing archetypes rather than real characters. And Tiffany Haddish was playing the same kind of tough ghetto girl that she's played in so many other films. As a matter of fact, probably the most surprising thing I found when Tiffany Haddish was going around to all these other real people and asking where her brother was, nobody stopped and said, 
oh my gosh, are you Tiffany Haddish? Especially considering that most of the people she asks are black. And Tiffany Haddish is by this time, uh, I don't know if she's an A-lister per se, but if she isn't, she's close. And she's enough of a crossover, particularly because of her roles in better movies like Girls Trip or her hosting gig in Kids Say the Darndest Things that about 80% of your average Joe or Josephine would know exactly who she is. The fact that nobody else seemed to recognize Tiffany Haddish even playing a character had me doubt that this movie was actually legitimate or as authentic as it claimed to be. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Boogie. This is a movie about uh, a basketball phenom named Alfred Boogie Chin, who, if you if you don't deduce that from the name, is a Chinese-American. And he lives in Queens, New York. And like many basketball phenoms, he has dreams of one day playing in the NBA, and he actually has prospects to either join the NBA or go to an elite college. The only thing is, he comes from a, an immigrant family who, who is not particularly wealthy, and they are pre- his parents are pressuring him to focus on earning a scholarship to an elite college. And throughout the movie, this character, Alfred Boogie Chin, who's played by an actor named Taylor Takahashi, is trying to find a way to bring his high school to a winning season, as well as navigating a new girlfriend, as well as some of the other pressures that you would expect somebody who's in their senior year of high school to have. I was by no means a sports phenom of any kind. When I was in high school, I played some sports, but I was okay at them. Uh, colleges were not fighting over each other, at least in terms of my athletic ability to get me into their school. But I, I think it's a it's a good story about some realistic um, things that sports phenoms have to go through sometimes to either get into the NBA or get into college on a full scholarship when their family can't afford to send them themselves. The movie is directed by and written by story and screenplay Eddie Huang. And for those of you who are not familiar with Eddie Huang, he is a producer and writer, and he also is a a professional chef. He's best known for having created the show Fresh Off the Boat, 
which was on ABC from 2015 to 2020. And it made a semi-household name out of Constance Wu. And not only did he create the show, but he wrote several of the uh, episodes and also produced the show. And it was actually loosely based on a memoir he wrote of the same name. In terms of his directing credentials, Boogie is actually his theatrical or rather feature film debut as a director. In 2003, he directed a short called Bitch Please. That is actually the name of the uh, short, but this is his first film, his first feature film as a director and I believe also as a writer. And I don't know how much of this is based on his life. I don't know if he was a sports phenom when he was in school, but I do know that he's had quite a career or has had several careers. So it might be semi-autobiographical. I don't know for sure. The lead actor in this film is Taylor Takahashi. As I said, he plays Alfred Boogie Chin. And Boogie is the name is his nickname. How he got the nickname, I don't exactly know, but all I know is that his character wants to be called this. And Alf, excuse me, Taylor Takahashi is actually making his um, acting debut in this film. He has never acted in any other movie or TV show before this one. So for a guy who has no previous on-screen acting experience to be the lead in a movie like this is rare. It happens sometimes, but it's, it's usually once in a blue moon. A lot of the other actors in this film, including uh, Pamela Chi, who plays his mother, and George Lederberg Jr., who plays his father, are, um, are veteran actors themselves. There's also the actress who plays his girlfriend, whose name is, her character's name is Eleanor, and she's played by a lovely young actress by the name of Taylor Page, who has had extensive acting experience herself, and she actually started out playing one of the backup dancers in High School Musical 3. Um, and she's come quite a way since then. And Taylor Page, since this is a radio show, I might as well tell you, is black. And it's very rare. To, it's not rare to see interracial relationships on screen anymore, but it's particularly rare to see an Asian person and a black person be in a relationship. And I thought that Taylor Page and Taylor Takahashi had great chemistry together, both when they liked each other, when, when their romance was developing, and also when they first met, when they didn't particularly like each other and were kind of getting on each other's cases. I liked that. Um, both when they were sort of um, not exactly enemies, but certainly not uh, meshing at first. I thought all of that was particularly believable. And I also like the fact that Boogie, the character, is not particularly perfect. He's not somebody who has who necessarily has a good head on his shoulders. He's not a particularly good team player at first. He actually has the nerve to say to his coach, whose name is Coach Hawkins, who's played by veteran actor Dominic Lombardozzi, that his team is, and I quote, hot trash. And this is him actually 
um, after transferring to the school in order to help the basketball team out. And it's also tempting sort of not to be on this kid's side when he calls his own team hot trash, but he's not entirely obnoxious. I think he's just obnoxious enough to be believable, but he's not so obnoxious that you're not on his side as the movie progresses. I think certainly when this movie adds the pressures of him to graduate and either get into the NBA, the CBA, that's the China Basketball Association, or get into a an elite college with a full scholarship, you're kind of siding with this guy. He's got a lot of pressure on him, and I think that Taylor Takahashi plays this guy so well. I also... I also should note that there is another actor here who plays a rival uh, in terms of basketball and also in terms of his love interest here. His name in the movie is Monk, and he's played by a guy by the name of Pop Smoke. Pop Smoke, that's obviously not his real name, was a 20-year-old rapper who is actually making his acting debut just like Taylor Takahashi. However, he actually died before the movie was released. He was involved in a shootout that unfortunately cost him his life. And this movie is actually dedicated to Pop Smoke. I think that it's a great debut for Taylor Takahashi. It certainly has various tropes of sports movies that you've seen, but for uh, a directorial and writing debut of Eddie Huang, who has never directed a feature film before this one. It is a very strong debut, a debut that earns my rating of a knockout. I think that Taylor Takahashi does a great job acting in this film for the first time. Eddie Huang does a great job directing this film for the first time. I loved all the supporting characters, including Taylor Page particularly and Pop Smoke. I think this movie felt real, it looked real, and overall, I loved it. So Boogie is a film you should definitely check out if it's on streaming or coming to a theater near you. Again, if it's safe to go out to theaters first. Back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I had to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into the movies that are going to be uh, coming to streaming platforms near you. Not necessarily the movies, just because I'm telling you that unless you've had two uh, COVID shots or one from Johnson & Johnson, you should probably still avoid movie theaters. Support independent theaters if you can. Stay away from multiplexes, or at least if you must go to the movies, be cautious. But I'm go- since I don't have a lot of time, I might as well tell you about some of the films that are going to be premiering for the week of April 5th through 9th, 2020. And on April 9th, there is going to be a movie that's going to be premiering on Netflix, which is a Netflix original, and it's called Have You Seen Fireflies? This is a 
movie from another country, and it is about a rebellious, irrelevant, wunderkind Gulserin who navigates loneliness, love, and loss against the current of political turmoil and social change. From what country? I don't exactly know. Actually, the director is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Andas Haznidarogla, who is from Turkey. So presumably this is a Turkish film. This is a movie I may see. I'm not guaranteeing it, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's going to be premiering on Netflix as a Netflix original is one that is called Night in Paradise. And if you'll just excuse me for a moment, I will tell you what this movie's about. It is a foreign film, and it is about a, a wronged mobster who is hiding out in Jeju Island following a brutal tragedy, and he has a target on his back, but he connects with a woman while hiding out who has her own demons. My presumption is that this is a Korean film because the director of the film is Park Hoon Jung, which sounds like a Korean name. And sure enough, Park Hoon Jung is South Korean. So this is a movie I probably will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. There is another original film that's going to be premiering on Netflix on Friday, April 9th, and it is called Thunder Road. Excuse me, Thunder Force. The movie is called Thunder Force. And this is a big movie. This is the one I will see. It stars Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer. This is a movie that takes place in a world, in a world, I just had to say that, where supervillains are commonplace and two estranged childhood best friends reunite after one devises a treatment that gives them powers to protect the city. So this is a comedy and a superhero film. And Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer play best friends and superheroes. Other people who star in the movie, which is written by and directed by Ben Falcone, include Jason Bateman, Bobby Cannavale, and Melissa Leo. So we've got some very um, well-known actors in the film. And Ben Falcone, who is Melissa McCarthy's husband, in addition to being her writing and directing partner is also in this movie in a small role. So the collaborations between Ben Falcone and Melissa McCarthy haven't been excellent all the time, but I still give Melissa McCarthy the doubt because it seems like whenever she makes a bad film, she, she makes a good film afterwards. Although I will say this, Melissa McCarthy took way too much crap for the movie, the happy times murders which in which she starred that movie wasn't perfect, but I was so surprised how many people hated that movie. I didn't think it was great, but I didn't think it was terrible. And Melissa McCarthy herself was not terrible in that movie, but I do think she has a comeback within her. It's been a while since she has been in a film. So this is, this might be her comeback role and her with Octavia Spencer could be a good combination. But again, then again, I can't guarantee it. All I can tell you is that Thunder Force will be premiering on April 9th on Netflix. I will see it and I will let you know exactly what I think on next week's show.
Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.